Today, I'm taking bold action to follow through on that promise. My administration is putting an end to the war on coal. Gonna have clean coal, really clean coal. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we're talking about coal, the people who ultimately bring power to our homes, and the moment in 2016 that may have changed the course of American politics forever. And if you want to skip the monologue and head straight to the interview, that begins at 3.55. What separates me from other podcasts is that I actually support coal, and I don't come at it from a position of hostility. Coal provides about a third of our nation's electrical supply. It is reliable, affordable, and with the exception of carbon dioxide emissions quite clean. I've alluded to my past working for the coal industry in previous episodes, and I'll go into a little bit more detail in this monologue. It began in 2005. By that point, I was living in Austin. I knew I wanted to get out of TV news and pursue a career in renewable energy because renewable energy was synonymous with clean energy, right? My girlfriend at the time's dad introduced me to a lobbyist for American Electric Power. We had a breakfast one morning, and he asked me one of the most important questions of my career. Do you want to work in renewable energy or do you want to work in alternative energy? I honestly didn't know the difference. Alternative energy, I guess. Well, that's important, he replied, because our company and others in the industry are spending a lot of time on clean coal technology. That is the process by which you capture the carbon dioxide and store it, sequester it, or use it for oil recovery. Now, that sounded interesting enough, and I went on to meet biodiesel companies, solar guys, you name it. Flash forward two more years, and I had since left the news business, started business school, and was now analyzing media coverage as a consultant on the TXU buyout, the largest in the history of modern finance. That summer, that same lobbyist asked me to come join the Clean Coal Technology Foundation, where I was promoted to executive director shortly after. Working with the Coal Foundation was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. I worked with professors who taught me the sophisticated technologies involved in coal technology. I met with attorneys and company executives who taught me the policy objectives of the industry. I ate it up. Before long, I found myself on panels at energy conferences stating, but mostly defending, the coal industry. It was a blast to disarm aggressive anti-coal advocates by telling them, look, we are for all types of energy and just want a place at the table. Back then, about eight years ago, coal made up half of our energy supply. So why the drop? I'd say the biggest reason was the explosion of hydraulic fracturing, which lowered the price of natural gas and kept it steady. In the past, natural gas was prone to wild price swings. Other factors include the Obama presidency and its pursuit of lower carbon energy, while at the same time, the rise of renewable energy affordability. Another reason was the failure to provide a cheap and easy way to capture carbon from coal plants. And finally, the public sentiment that coal is dirty and had to go. 
At the beginning of the show, I played a clip from President Trump's March 28th announcement of an executive order ending the so-called war on coal. It asks for a regulatory review and 120 days to make recommendations to reduce burdens on domestic energy production, particularly coal. It also rescinded about six Obama-era executive orders to reduce climate-changing emissions, which were certain to make the environmental community ecstatic. So how did we get here? Coal was on its way out, and greenhouse gas emission policy would only increase, we thought. But I would argue that the shift back towards coal and the political upheaval that caused so many working-class voters to jettison the Democratic Party in the 2016 election began in Charleston, West Virginia, nine months earlier. See, I come here, I get an award. It's probably a hat. It's a hard hat. You may remember this campaign rally. Trump was presented with a white miner's hard hat. The organization that endorsed him that day and presented him with that piece of personal protective equipment. You know, your coal association, West Virginia Coal Association, just endorsed me. And the gentleman who introduced the future president-elect and fired up that West Virginia crowd was our guest today, Chris Hamilton, vice president of the West Virginia Coal Association. Thank you, thank you, Mr. President. On behalf of the best coal miners in the world who mine the cleanest and safest and most environmentally sound coal in the world, we're so pleased to introduce to it, endorse you today and wish you the best of luck and vow to support you the best we can. Thank you. Thank you. Now, what happened next is what I consider transformative. Here is this New York real estate developer. Nice. We've never seen him without a tie. Y'all put it on, right? And he puts on the hard hat and gives the crowd two thumbs up. And that, my friends, is how Donald J. Trump sees the blue-collar vote away from Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and yes, West Virginia, a state that in the same election cycle elected a Democratic governor. I met Chris for the first time during our interview about two months ago at the state capitol in Charleston. Chris agreed to meet during a lull in the busy legislative session, so I was grateful for the time. He then led me to one of the members' offices there in the building, which was chock full of coal memorabilia. There were several Trump digs coal signs from that 2016 rally I mentioned, as well as more sentimental images, such as a black and white photo of a miner and his young son. This mining tradition goes back generations for West Virginians, and time can only tell what coal mining will look like for future generations. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Hamilton. We're here with Chris Hamilton. He's the Senior Vice President of the West Virginia Coal Association. So the first question, you're delivering the State of the Union Address for Coal Country. How does that go here in 2017? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've gone through a period of austerity to a period of survival here the last three or four years. So, uh, and, and everybody feels the, the pain. Everybody's experiencing some of the consequences of a coal industry that's been hammered and has lost half its productivity, half of its annual output, half of its employment levels. Let's talk about coal prices. That's what keeps mm-hmm. that industry mm-hmm. going. Uh, looks like they peaked around maybe the late 2000s, 
but there's a little bit of a recovery, it seems. It seems like the price has come back a little bit in the last year. Well, there's an uptick uh, that we're seeing in the market. There's reason to be optimistic at the current time. The real question is whether or not this current level of improvement, if you will, can be sustained over time. In the case with metallurgical coal that is sent around the world to produce steel, and I want to emphasize that point, it's a high-valued portion of the coal portfolio that is used to make and produce steel. Now, nothing replaces that. You have alternatives to burning coal when you produce electricity, wind generation, gas generation, but there are no alternatives or substitutes for high-grade, low-vol, southern West Virginia coal to produce steel worldwide. We're in an interesting room here. I'm going to take some pictures up, put it on the website. We have a lot of Trump stands for coal. Trump digs coal. I think we saw a lot of this during the campaign. Trump has promised a future for coal miners. Before we get into Trump's policies, how do you feel about the analysis that Democrats turned their back on coal miners? It seemed that Hillary Clinton, maybe the reason that she lost was that her prescription was, we're just going to teach all the coal miners a computer class. You know, that is no exaggeration. That is exactly what we have experienced over the past decade or, or longer now. In fact, you could probably trace this back with the Democrat Party to Al Gore when he was serving as vice president. But, you know, now Gore has crusaded for climate change and, in particular, the decreased use of fossil fuels around the world ever since. When he left the White House, Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi effectively kept that voice out there in that position of wanting to wean the country away from fossil fuels. And it wasn't until Barack Obama took office in 2008 that that was the presence of the Democrat Party in that regard, uh, taking a very strong anti-coal position was transferred back to the White House. And he did a great job, very effective job, of carrying that torch uh, the whole way down close to the end zone. I mean, he has spent uh, eight years using every single resource available to him as president of the United States to ratchet down, restrict, or curtail the active production of coal, the permitting of coal mine operations, uh, the funding of coal mine operations, and the enlargement of our ports to prevent us from exporting greater amounts of coal around the world, where it's uh, become one of the fastest growing base fuels for electric generation worldwide. West Virginia is an interesting state. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Louisiana because we go back and forth mm -hmm. red versus blue, at least on the federal level, because you've got a Democrat governor. On the federal level, they it was it was theirs to lose. This idea of the coal workers, yes. they had been so loyal over the years, and finally it was too many years of policies kowtowing to the other minorities mm -hmm. that make up the coalition of national Democrats. Do you think that was really it? Too much of a conflict of interest and, oh, and coal miners lost out? Absolutely. In West Virginia, I believe it was one of the last Dixie state to turn red. And that's been a transition over the past 10, 12 years. It always seems that the West Virginia Democrats, Joe Manchin, mm -hmm. they've talked about this for years. He sounds like a Republican. I just heard Jim Justice sounds very moderate. Okay, let's be very objective here, politically speaking. Do you think that federal Democrats could learn something from the Democrats here in West Virginia? From a few Democrats here in West Virginia. Again, as a party, it's been amazing, but the party has become 
become so liberal and so anti-fossil fuel development on the state level in just a, in, a, in a relatively short span of time of less than a decade. And it's been strongly rumored that U.S. Senator, former Governor Joe Manchin, is contemplating a party change. Now, 10 years ago, I would say without question, unequivocally, national Dems could take a lesson off of our state Dems. Trump captured the election by appealing to coal miners, you could say. What does he have the power to do to make a real impact on the industry? I think this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. After eight years of President Obama, I'm concerned over the fact that the whole issue of climate change and the discussion of the role that fossil fuel and coal in particular plays will continue, not only through and during the Trump administration, but following that period of time as well. And we will also likely see individual states pursue carbon capture and control programs. I think we have an opportunity here under President Trump and his administration as strong as a voice for coal and the resurrection of our manufacturing prominence as a country. You know, we had under President Bush that we found that President Obama next was something called a future gen project. And that was a proposed emission-free coal-fired power plant that was going to incorporate all the carbon capture and control technologies. I remember FutureGen. So, I was brought in uh, the Clean Coal Foundation. Mm -hmm. This was right when they were making the right. final decision on FutureGen. I think it was two sites in Texas mm -hmm. and two in mm -hmm. Illinois. Let's talk about the guy who's probably going to be responsible for those dollars, Rick Perry. Mm -hmm. Ever met him? Yes. What do you think? Oh, I'm really impressed with Energy Secretary, former Governor Perry. Comes from the state of Texas, like West Virginia. Not just a Big 12 member, but, but rich in energy. You know, has a very balanced the energy portfolio. He has seen it firsthand. He, is, he's, he was a hands-on governor of a very energy-intensive state that saw his entire state prosper and benefit as well as all the residents from low energy costs, low household fuel costs. I'm very excited about the Brump Perry energy team that we now have in place. DOE has mm -hmm. uh, a lot of programs for giving federal dollars out for pilot projects. Mm -hmm. Do you think that an energy Secretary Perry is going to try to level the playing field over the renewable dollars and the fossil dollars. Yes, unequivocally. I really do. And again, I believe that's our only hope of creating and developing some infrastructure to sustain coal usage in an environmental and carbon-free manner and to enhance coal production. You know, there's going to be a natural transition from coal to other base fuels not too long from now. But interestingly, when you think about it over the past decade, particularly under uh, President Obama, we have witnessed firsthand the emergence of this environmental police academy called EPA in a almost a subordinate role with the DOE. And I think we're going to see that change. Here we are sitting as a major, and I'd like to think the strongest economy, the strongest nation in the world. And it's time that our energy industry is elevated to a position that's commensurate with all that opportunity. Back in the late 2000s, that was really when I came in the picture. Mm -hmm. We were promoting carbon capture and storage 
storage. Where do we find ourselves in 2017? There were several projects that would have probably been online by now if we were still talking back in 2008. Yes. Is it still something that we need to be looking at, carbon capture? It, it absolutely is. And the industry would be the first to say that. One of the things I think that really felt like a deal killer to a lot of people was this idea that all of that would be about a one-third parasitic load on the plant. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to build an extra coal plant for every three and, you yep. know, just forget about it. But that's premature, don't you think? I do think. I do think. And, uh, you know, with that, at the same time, you saw a decrease in the funding that was going for the basic research. And so, again, I go back to we got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, you know, to try to recreate some of that infrastructure. But uh, we need dollars. We need investment dollars back in this energy field, and we need commitments from the president on down that we are going to put miners back to work, and we are going to uh, continue to uh, burn coal in this country, and we're going to continue to put dollars into the research as we have into the renewable development portfolio here to try to sustain that energy source going forward. Uh, environmentalists, and for people on the coal side, the relationship with environmentalists is, is pretty adversarial. Do you think, and you talk about a world policy, if environmentalists really wanted to make a change rather than protesting one coal-fired unit in Indiana, why weren't they in China going against all of those build-outs? Yes, yes, or India or South America or anywhere else. The facts are that even under the president's plan, it was still only going to remove, I believe it was 3% or less of global emissions from coal-fired plants. I'm going to go through a few other uses of coal that I don't feel get talked about very much. There's been talk over the year about coal exports. Where are we on that? Is that still an opportunity it is opportunity. in the East? Yeah, in the East. Uh, the West, uh, again, there's a lot of uh, port expansion that was planned, a lot of new ports expanded out West to allow an outlet for the large volumes of coal mined in Wyoming. The United States exports about 15% of the coal that's produced here domestically. West Virginia accounts for about 50% of all U.S. coal exports, again, because of the quality of our coals here and the close proximity to our ports. Who's getting oh, those we exports? send it down throughout the Central America. We do send it to India and China. We send it throughout the European nation up, up in the Netherlands. We're sending it to India and China. Is that because the grade's better? Yes, and you know, it's interesting. Those countries are so large, and in some instances, it costs more to ship coal from eastern China to western than what it does to import it. Really? Just because of the terrain, lack of infrastructure, just yeah. no way of getting it there. I want to get a little bit back to West Virginia mm -hmm. and talk about the history of West Virginia. Without West Virginia coal, yes. no American exceptionalism, I would say. That's oh, what without, really got us here. Without question. You know, our state's 153 years old, and we've been mining coal here uh, for all of those years and for a few years in addition, you know, when we were a single state of Virginia. The state's relied on it. It's produced jobs, created our tax base. It's built schools, highways, roads, and, you know, it's brought us through the industrial age, the, the two world wars, and so there's a lot of heritage here, a lot of, a lot of culture. Today's miners, for some time, they almost feel a lot of them, most of them are veterans, but you know, you can really get patriotic with the, the job they do and what it means to this country and this state. You know, they feel like they've been abandoned. I mean, I, I just think it's phenomenal that we would hear a presidential candidate to talk about doing away with jobs in any sector of our country. 
this idea of the history of, of coal mining in West Virginia, I think that everyone is, is pretty well aware of it. I think that the one thing that really, I think, surprises a lot of people from out of state is this idea that it's a multi-generational thing. I mean, it is. and these guys, what do you think it is about, is it just a, a tide of the land, you think, that makes one generation after another go down in the, yeah. in yeah. the mine? You know, the actual task of mining has changed so much. And I know most of the world, when they think of coal mine, they think of that dirty-faced hillbilly guy with a pick and shovel. And, and I tell you, we have real and have had for 20 years now real Star Wars technologies. And it's very sophisticated work and uh, very, very complex. And a great number of our miners here in West Virginia have some college education today. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of college graduates uh, have a lot of engineering. You know, our schools are set up. A lot of our accountants and business schools are geared towards mining or petroleum engineering. So, uh, you know, it's not uncommon. You go to our flagship university and there's a large number of individuals that are going to try to find employment within coal, if not on the front line, somewhere in supervisory or on the business side or the management side. Dumbest question of the, <laughs> of the afternoon. <laughs> I love asking this question. Do you think coal has received an unfair shake in this country? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I, I think we're both trying not to laugh here, but yeah. I mean seriously. I, I, I do. And I think the follow-up is, what what do you think gets construed more than anything else, Chris? Misconstrued. Or could, what would construed be? You know, I, th I think there's a real perception issue with this industry. For whatever reason, I think we tend to carry forward all the negative or undesirable aspects of this industry. It is a, a very modernized industry. People don't necessarily make that connection between coal mining and their personal quality of life. And again, I attribute most of that not just to freedoms we've had and liberty, but because of the quality of life that's been affordable to all of us and the, the, just this amazing, very comprehensive infrastructure that's in place that delivers household electricity at such a cheap price because of what the miners are doing underground and sort of invisible to us on a 24-7 basis. Last question. I'm going to finish with a lightning round for your thoughts on different energy technologies. And this is basically word okay. association, if you will. Okay. Natural gas. Explosive. Crude oil. <laughs> Crude. <laughs> nuclear. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think a nuclear is perhaps the next round of where we look to drive a greater percentage of household and industrial energy from. Coal. Coal, I think, has a place in and of itself as a finite resource, and we ought to take full advantage of it while it's here. And it's a bridge technology. It's a bridge. It's an interim fuel. It's very old and has a lot of history, but on the other hand, it's an inter interim to the future. Wind. Boy, a lot of a lot of uh, birds falling out of the sky comes quickly to mind. But no, I, you know, I, I, I think West Virginia has a pretty strong wind industry. It really does on a per capita basis. Whatever means they use to measure that, I think West Virginia, because of some of the windmills we have up in the northeastern part of the state. And I think it's really good where it works. Solar. Solar, uh, you know, probably like nuclear, there's probably some advanced generations of solar out ahead of us that'll be the successful 
mobile and maybe they'll learn how to store that someday and transmit it uh, efficiently. Hydroelectric? You know, maybe it was ahead of its time when it was here, but you know, we have a couple small-scale hydro projects here in West Virginia. You know, when you sit here and look at that body of water passing by every day, it seems like maybe we ought to be able to find greater uses of moving water. Geothermal? Yeah, I like solar. I'm not sure we've done all the research and probably needs to take to the next level. Electric vehicles? You know, interestingly, uh, I can't shake from my uh, memory recall. I was at a conference uh, 25 years ago and there was an individual talking because there was a new Tesla at that time. And they said, you know, electric vehicles is one of those uh, technologies that's always going to be coming. <laughs> but never quite arrives. But probably one of the best opportunities for coal and the electricity it, it makes it, there. It really is, yes. Finally, <laughs> we'll probably all be dead, but nuclear fusion. <laughs> nuclear fusion, there you are. Probably all will be dead. You know, again, I just, we're awful short-sighted sometimes in our views on, on things. The nuclear fusion concerns me, but I'm an optimist, and with that, I, I do have an appreciation for all forms of energy, energy production, so just leave it at that. Chris Hamilton, thank you so much for your time. Jay, thank you. Really enjoyed uh, the opportunity to catch up and be able to give a give a perspective or two. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it, my interview with Chris Hamilton, Vice President of the West Virginia Coal Association. I would also add to his job title, Presidential Haberdasher and Political History Maker, in part due to his role in the 2016 campaign. Chris and I also spoke about air emissions. Despite what coal critics will have you believe, there's practically no pollution spewing from those smokestacks. It's just steam and, yes, carbon dioxide, pesky CO2, or as Chris calls it, plant food. All interviewees for this podcast are sent the finished product and the raw audio of the interview the week of release so that they are given a chance to sign off on how they were represented. I wanted to maintain a higher standard than even the ones journalists employ. Additional pics can be found on Instagram. Search for host energy. You can also email me at host at energy-cast.com and on the web at energy-cast.com. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop. That's S-T-R-O-O-P loops. We'll remain in West Virginia next week when we talk to the gas guys up there. That wraps up episode six and we're just getting started. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.